Aw Yeah Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, a.k.a. my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have kids and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join Aw Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit awyeahcomics.com and follow Aw Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Say it with me now. Aw Yeah! Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and under new ownership since 2020, Moose sells a wide selection of comics from every publisher and time period, along with action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany the next time you're in the Garden State, and be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. 30 years ago, I stood in front of a comic shop advertising the death of Superman in its window display. That moment outside Heroes World set me on a path, a lifelong fan journey leading directly from that tattered red cape to this podcast. Now, together, we mine Superman's vast 85-year mythology by examining, discovering, and reconsidering the stories that have shaped the last son of Krypton. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss the animated films Reign of the Superman and Superman Man of Tomorrow is screenwriter Tim Sheridan. Tim, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. You've got such a good voice for this. That's very kind of you. I appreciate uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not like the backhanded thing. It was like, you, you've got a face for radio or something. That's not what I mean. I just mean, I was like, I was very impressed when you started there with the intro. Well, I appreciate that. And I so appreciate you coming on here. It really means a lot. I am a big fan of both of these movies. That's why I asked you on here. I've watched them multiple times, including over the past couple of nights in preparation for this <laughs> episode. And they held up great. I had such a good time with them. And I'm so okay. excited to get your take on, on both of these films. But just first and foremost, thank you for these movies, because I really had a great time with both of them. Oh, my gosh. Well, I wouldn't get to do these things if you weren't watching them. So I really appreciate that. Uh, and everybody who who watches this stuff. I'm... You know, the only reason, like right now, I've, I've been doing a lot of work in at DC Comics and other other comics, and um, I only got to do that because of the work that I had done in animation. You know, I started on a, a TV show, and um, my first ever professional writing job was on a on a show called Justice League Action, and then that just op kept opening up doors for me. And that's Reign of the Superman was the first, you know, DC movie that I got to adapt, got to work on. So that, that was that was thrilling, you know. Be, and I've talked about this so many times before, so I won't go into too much detail on it. It's just that Reign of the Superman coincidentally were the first Superman comics I ever bought as a kid. And I couldn't believe it when they asked me if I would adapt Reign of the Superman. Uh, I said, you know, they, they I think they asked, do you know the story of Reign of the Superman? Like what happens after death of Superman? I was like, uh, do I know? Let's talk about it. And they were like, uh, yeah, well, all of that stuff is great, but we're going to have to change a lot of it because it needs to fit into the universe of movies that we're doing. And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> but it was fun. So you and I are kindred spirits in a major way because the death of Superman was my introduction to not just Superman, but comics generally and really set me on this path. And I'll leave it at that because my audience has heard it a million times. <laughs> but <laughs> that, Well, you know what, though, Anthony? I have to tell you, like, I... Death of Superman wasn't my in. 
I didn't come in until rain. Rain was the thing that excited me. There was something about death of Superman. I guess it's because it was about death and something that was final and it felt like an ending. And that didn't excite me the way that the promise of these new supermen, who are they? Is one of them the real Superman? The mystery around it, the designs of the characters, the art was so cool. Um, that's what really got me into it. I had been a Batman fan. And then I grew up, you know, on cartoons. And then Batman was a huge thing. And that was kind of my DC in was Batman. And then um, and then Reign of the Superman. And not even death, but Reign was the thing that, that brought me to Superman. No, I hear you. And that's the thing with that whole saga is that Funeral and Reign, I feel, are where so much of the, the heart and the substance are. There's so much going on in those stories. Had it just been death, would only get so far. <laughs> but the yeah. the sagas or the chapters of the saga that came after just really elevated it. You've already answered a, a big part of what my first question was going to be, which is the same question I ask every first-time guest. What is your Superman fan journey, right? How did it start for you, which you've already hit on? But what are the stories that really shaped how you see the character? Oh, I mean, first and foremost... For me, I mean, obviously, part of that, the answer is Reign of the Superman. That was my, literally, the first time I read him in comics. Um, I had, of course, read, you know, Superman appeared in things that I had read, like Dark Knight Returns, which is a very different sort of view on Superman, but still a very interesting, valid viewpoint. Um, but above all, I would say more than anything, the Richard Donner movie at movies, really, if you watch the Donner cut of the second movie, um, I, you know, those movies really, and, and look, to be honest, Superman three and four for me too. I mean, I was a, a big movie kid and, um, those really defined Superman for me as a, as a kid. Um, so my, my, that was my introduction. I think like a lot of people my age, I mean, that was how we understood Superman was through Christopher Reeve. And, um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that because I think, I think they just really nailed the heart of, of that, of that character, of this character. They, they, yeah, I mean, I don't know, I guess people could, might have notes on the movie. They might have notes on some of the other characters, I, I, I guess. But for me, the first Superman movie is a perfect movie and it's a perfect comic book movie. I don't know that we've ever made a comic book movie as good as that. And I say comic book movie, I, that's a that's a little bit reductive. I just think that we we've never made a movie about a superhero that was that good. I don't think that we ever I don't know that we ever can again. No, I, I mean, you'll believe a man can fly, <laughs> you know, and that wasn't just about, you know, you couldn't see the wires. It was the heart of the movie. It was the heart of the character. And that's something that Donner always understood. And, and uh and I, you know, so that, that was, that was the thing. That was the thing. Gotcha. No, it's certainly easy to see how that could be so formative. And we'll probably talk more about that when we focus more on the man of tomorrow movie, uh, which yeah. I, I feel like, and I, I'm very curious to get your take. I feel like it's sometimes mischaracterized as an adaptation of Superman American alien, but it's really its own thing though. Certainly they share some similarities, but I, I look at that as an original work, as opposed to something like the reign of the Superman where you were animate, where you were adapting a comic book story. It's, it's so tough, you know, it's so tough because I don't know that you can ever call anything in this realm that I've been working in 
original because we stand on the shoulders of giants in terms of the creators who came before us, but also just the stories themselves. And there were elements from different different Superman projects that that we, you know, rooted ourselves in when we did Man of Tomorrow. One of them was American Alien. And that, because that was something that, I mean, I liked that story, but it was something that the supervising producer, Butch Lukic, um, which in animation is kind of like what the director would be in a live action movie. Like the, the, the chief, you know, creative vision for the whole project. That's them. And so Butch is the guy. And Butch really responded to American Alien and thought that was the right way to do the kind of Superman story we wanted to do. We, we were the only, we were this tiny little group of people and we were the only ones in the world who knew that we were making a, an entire cycle of movies, a universe of movies. And it started with, we started, we did the long, the adaptation of Batman, the long Halloween first. We wrote, I wrote those first, those went into production first. And then the third movie in that cycle, excuse me, was supposed to be man of tomorrow, but that got, pushed up in the production order for various reasons. And so that man of tomorrow became the first movie out in that cycle and long Halloween followed it. Um, but the idea was we were sort of coming off of what we learned and what we did in long Halloween when we did man of tomorrow, which was how do we do an origin story that doesn't feel like year one origin story that feels like a year two, uh, you know, the way the long Halloween is a great introduction to Batman but it's not the first year he's on the job. It's the second year, really, that he's on the job. He's he's done some stuff. In fact, he's put a lot of costume villains in Arkham at that point. They're all in there. And then we see him, you know, uh, uh, sort of learning to become a detective. Man of Tomorrow, that was the big sort of question mark for us. We said, well, how do we do year two, but as an introduction to Superman? So essentially, you know, I think we all kind of came in. We knew that American Alien had done something similar. Well, actually, this the way it worked was we 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 talked about it first, and then a writer named, um, who's an incredible writer and showrunner and producer, who's a friend of mine named Margaret Scott. Margaret, we were in a meeting, we were all hanging out, Jim Krieg, Butch Lukic, the producers, and Margaret and I, and I, one of us said, we, what we want to do is a year two origin for Superman. So what we think it would be, would be like his first year in Metropolis, but sort of taking it as if perhaps the Superboy story didn't really happen. Let's sort of start as if that didn't happen. How does he find himself becoming Superman now at this point? And, um, uh, you know, and really just because the Superboy stuff is so good and, and it's so rich on its own that it's its own story that would have, I think, robbed us of being able to tell some of the details um, that we got to tell in Man of Tomorrow, the clumsiness of trying to figure out how, you know, who to be and how to be. It was all about identity. And so he had to, if we had done Superboy, he would have already had so much of his identity figured out at that point. Anyway, Margaret said, oh, you know, a great story that did this sort of thing and set it the same way that you're talking about as American alien. None of us had read it at that point. So we all went off that night and we read American alien. We all came back and we're like, yeah, that's kind of the, 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 the viewpoint in terms of, of 
of Clark and Kal-El of like with the flying man and, you know, figuring out the, not just the costume, but the identity itself and, and being new in town and all that stuff. And, uh, and then, then we, then I, you know, started cycling in other stuff that I had read and, and loved and wanted to make sure we got, you know, thematically at least into the movie which was, you know, obviously the Donner movie, but also Birthright and uh, Superman for All Seasons, which were stories that were really important to me. So, I mean, Superman for All Seasons, it's more spiritual, I think, and inspirational in terms of, like, in terms of the inspiration in Man of Tomorrow. Birthright, we had a couple of technical elements that came right out of that, but it was... Um, but you can see on the screen the visuals that come from American Alien, and I think that's why people will confuse that and say this is a direct adaptation of American Alien, which it wasn't, but uh, I'm not here to say that we did not, we weren't aware of it. We sure were. And we loved pieces of it. And we wanted to bring some of those pieces into that movie. Now, now technically, it was an original story, original screenplay. But I don't know how any of us could ever call any of it original because there's so much material. to. It's all adaptation at that point. It's These characters are are part of our DNA and we there's so many stories that we're really just adapting the characters into another story. Sure. No, your point is is well taken. Circling back to Reign of the Superman. Now you co-wrote that with Jim Craig, correct? Yeah, it was it was a interesting situation. So Jim uh hired me to come and work on a show called Justice League Action that Butch Lukic was the supervising producer on. And um that's how we really worked together for the first time. We had met, but we hadn't really done anything together. Uh, and he he brought me in on that. And it went great. Like, we had so much fun. And um, uh, we had a, a fantastic Superman, by the way, and, and an actor on the Justice League action show um, and named uh, Jason, Jason Lewis, who was, he's so good. He's a man of a million voices, but his Superman was so earnest and beautiful. Anyway, Sorry, tangent, but it just reminded me of it. Um, but uh, but out of that, when when that show was wrapped, when I came in for the last six, five, six episodes, and that was it. And the show didn't get picked up for another season. We only did one season. And, uh, and so the next thing on the agenda was, what are we going to do next? James Tucker, the animator and, and producer who had been producing all the DC universe movies um was working on death of superman and they knew they were going to do a follow-up to it and uh and i said and i think the way it worked was i think i came in and jim said what do you know about that whole cycle of stories and and i was like what do i know i was like that's reign of the superman is the whole thing i love it and he was like oh reign of the superman like i don't think it, at that point they were calling it death of superman part two and and they they hadn't really made the connection, I think, to the really cool elements of the story of Reign of the Superman. And uh, so I was kind of pitching it all out to him, I think, and telling him like, oh, there's these guys and then there's this and then and then this happens. And, and it, there was one point when we were talking about the possibility of it being three movies, that it would be Death, Reign, and then Return of Superman. Um, but... I mean, I think it was just, you know, the the writers were dreaming about it. I don't think anybody was serious, uh, you know, at the executive level about doing that. I also tried to get them to do Long Halloween in three movies, 
but they 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 uh, talked me down to two. They originally wanted one, but I told them I couldn't do it in one, and you can't. Um, so so that was that, and and so uh, so Rain, I, so Jim and I embarked on that process. We broke the story. And, um, and then, you know, I was kind of going off and writing pages and then he would look at, we kind of worked in the, in a way that was the prelude to the way we would work on Long Halloween and Man of Tomorrow, which was where Jim was like a story producer and was a guiding force and hand in the project and, um, would sort of give me notes all the time and we would come up with we'd talk to each other all the time and come up with ideas and and uh and really invaluable like a great way to work and it was and and so we 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 were you know that was you know we we uh, you know were credited together as as co-screenwriters but really Jim was working as a producer on that movie and um his work far exceeded you know uh, what it, what it is to be a screenwriter Jim at one point though um took another gig on a TV series when we were in the middle of rain and he had to leave for a bit to go to another studio to work on something. And so that left me with Alan Burnett, who is a legendary writer and producer who also worked on justice league action. I met him on that show and, and, and he was sort of um, uh, the producer over all of the animated DC movies and a lot of other movies. And so I got the benefit of getting to be in a room with Alan Burnett day in, day out, fixing, changing, rewriting, working on that script together while Jim was doing his other thing. And then Jim came back and then came in for the rest of the process. So it was a really, for me, a really amazing learning experience. Uh, I'm not even, at this point, I haven't even told, to mentioned what happens once the once we think the draft is ready and done, then we bring it to James Tucker and Sam Liu and those guys who are the visual geniuses and the storytelling, you know, geniuses behind all of many of these movies, if not all of them. Um, uh, and they come in and they've got notes and they've got ideas about how we can, re you know, revise the script and and make it better and 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 they tell us what beats aren't hitting and what they want to what they want to do and. And it becomes this really amazing collaboration of a whole bunch of passionate people who are fans um, trying to m make a movie. And the the key is, are you all making the same movie? Like if one, if you're all making the same movie, you're going to have something cool. B sometimes it's not that. Sometimes they somebody wants to make a different movie than everybody else, and you you know butt heads, and you try to figure out how to find a way through, and you end up compromising, and you know then nobody gets what they want, but the fans might. The, you know, the fans might actually get something really cool in the end. So um, ultimately that's what matters. Not that the, the artists, writers, and creators get what they want, but that the fans get what they want. It's fascinating to hear how it came to be and the discussion about the number of movies, because I remember very well that 2007 Superman Doomsday animated film that we got. And it's interesting. It was the first one, the first one they did. The first one in this line and it's one of those things where I think everyone, including the people involved, because I think they've said as much, or, or I would imagine everyone recognizes you need more real estate to fully tell that story. But to that movie's credit, in their defense, 
if you said to me, hey, you have to adapt death, funeral, and rain, you have 75 minutes, go, I'd probably do something similar, where you have the battle with Doomsday, you have a brief period of mourning, and I think the big swing that that movie took was consolidating the four replacement Superman into one, but you still have that core idea that there's a replacement, and the real Superman has to return, and, and you have that challenge and that final battle and the, and the full return, but I never thought we would get another crack at it. Right. Like as a fan, I kind of thought that was it. And that was all we were going to get. So I was delighted when this two part adaptation came around. You know, Bruce Tim made that movie. He did a, It's a great movie. It was hugely successful. I don't think any of the animated movies they've done since then have been as successful as Doomsday. Maybe, maybe some have have surpassed that. I know we, we were getting awfully close with Long Halloween, but we also maybe had two movies. I don't know if we we we're adding them together or not. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, it really did make the argument ultimately for why we needed a, a Reign of the Superman movie, if only to be able to explore and see those four characters. Um, I mean, you know, there are so many other characters that, you know, we could have seen and didn't get to see, but but certainly the, the quote-unquote replacement Superman. Um, that, you know to me that was the excitement of it it was sort of there were lots of compromises we were going to have to make because you're not making a comic book you're making a movie and they're a completely different thing and so and it was a movie that was in the universe of another whole bunch of movies and so it had certain restrictions that were you know just sort of built into it like we you know we couldn't use mongol because they had not introduced Mongol at all in that line of movies. And it would have taken too much time to explain Mongol to everyone who hadn't, you know, who wasn't a fan of the comics. Um, and, and at that point they'd done so much work on dark side that it, the decision was made to, to sort of shift that part of the story over to, uh, you know, to dark side instead of, uh, instead of Mongol. So there were little things like that, but I think that the doomsday was a great movie, but I think it made an argument and it's, you know, it's, it's existence was an argument for why we, I think deserved, you know, a, uh, a, 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 a little bit more robust adaptation of, uh, of those, of those stories. Having said that, we still haven't gotten like a, the actual full-on real story. But again, I think what we tried to do, what we always try to do, is celebrate the source material and not try to replace it, but try to supplement and be, you know, the way I always look at it is that our movies play out in a different corner of the DC multiverse. So it's the story, the same kind of similar parts of the story that you'll recognize, but it plays out a little differently over here. And in the comics, it plays out this way. And they are don't not meant to replace each other. It's that one celebrates one and and hopefully gets people to hopefully the movies get people to read the books. That's um that was I don't know that anybody ran out and read Reign of the Superman after the movie came out, but I hope some of them did. You know, I mean, that's a, that's a big story over multiple titles, uh, you know, and, uh, it's hard to, to, to read that stuff. Um, if you're, unless you were reading it in real time, it can be difficult to make the connections and know, understand what part of the DC universe we're in at that moment. And why is this character here and not this character? But, uh, but it was, it was, 
it was a unique opportunity. I'm, I, I can't believe I got, got to be a part of it. Well, I, as a fan, I so enjoyed it. And I would imagine it was very difficult because with, with any adaptation, but particularly this one, you want to have enough that's familiar to fans of the source material, but you need to keep it fresh and exciting. And though it's not the same as the long Halloween reign of the Superman is to a large extent, a mystery. So you have that, that element to wrestle with. And like you said, you also have to fit within the framework of this DC uh, original movie animated universe, right? So it has to fit within that framework as well. And what I saw in watching it was the core aspects of the comic book story present in, in, in many instances where you have the brash young Superboy and though we didn't have Cadmus proper, you had many of those elements folded into, into LexCorp. You know, that, but what's interesting about that, right, is that that stuff wasn't in the Rain arc. All the explanation of how he existed and why didn't happen in that story. It came later. So we were sort of, we sort of felt like, well, why not? Why can't we push some of that up and put it you know, and, and cement it here so that we understand because it was a much more interesting story to have Superboy, you know, with my two dads, like trying to sort of being torn between whether he's going to be, you know, the successor to Lex or the successor to Superman. And what does that mean for him? That's a great story. And, and ultimately because we didn't have Supergirl, you know, it, 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 it you wanted to flesh out his story a little bit more and give him, put some more meat on the bone for, for that. I think, you know, I would have loved to have had Supergirl. That was another one just like Mongol where there had been no setup to Supergirl in that cycle of movies. Um, you know, plus the fact that it wasn't really Supergirl, but that's a whole other thing. Yes. The matrix Supergirl incarnation. I know. It's, but how do you explain all that in like an 80 minute movie? And you're like, you know, having to explain all of this stuff. And make it satisfying. It's it you know it's cha it's it's a challenge. It's not that we didn't try. It's just that you very quickly realize what you can get away with and what you can't in a in a movie. And they're they're you know and especially one of these movies that ultimately are only going to be 80, 85 minutes you know tops. Um, but I'm glad. I'm, I'm I'm grateful that you said that you saw the the cornerstones the the you know the the um, the, the big pieces of 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 that story were still present in in our movie. I I think we did as good a job as 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 we could do and, and as anyone might do um in, in with the real estate that we had available to us to introduce and make an argument for all of those new supermen. The other the biggest character, the star of that movie in many ways is Lois Lane. Yes. And we were so lucky to have Rebecca Romaine, who was fantastic in Death of Superman, you know, uh, real life uh, wife of Jerry O'Connell, who played Superman. Um, and uh, I'm so happy she's continuing to be so successful. Um, uh, but we were very fortunate to have her. She was a grounding force, a real anchor for that movie. I remember writing the first scene of the movie and thinking it all comes down to all of this comes down to if she can pull it off in terms of the acting. And I didn't have to worry about it because she's fantastic. But um, there were a few scenes that she had in that movie that were real, um, 
they were real, like, you know, almost soapy kind of scenes where it was real conversational and, you know, figuring things out in talking to another person, a two-hander scene or whatever. Um, and then taking, obviously taking action and, and doing some cool super, you know, kind of stuff without any superpowers. But I think she was, she was terrific. And, and she's really the, perhaps the main character of the whole thing. That was my takeaway. And I really enjoyed that. And even placing her in the climax of the film, right, is a deviation from the source material. It works great. And I think it really helps tie everything together. And it's funny because when we talk about, again, having to fit within the framework of that cinematic universe, it, maybe it might seem like, oh, it was a sacrifice or a challenge or whatnot. But I do think it creates opportunities as well. One of the things that I think works because of its place in the cinematic universe is the interaction between Lois and Wonder Woman. And that was phenomenal. I love that whole dynamic. And you have that because in this line of movies, they had had that relationship and of course, building off of the new 52 comics and whatnot. But like, that was tremendous. You know, that, thank you. That was a scene that I, I pitched at the very beginning and I knew I wanted to do that scene. And then the whole project sort of took shape. And when we got to, we were at the, like way near the end of the scripting process. Right, right at the end. I mean, maybe the last draft. And we needed to cut some stuff for, for space. And I, I said to Alan Burnett, I was like, I think we got to cut the lowest Wonder Woman scene. And I said, it's, it's, it's awful. I don't want to, you know, kill my darlings. But it is the kind of thing where you have to be willing to sacrifice something that might you might think is really good that ultimately might stop the movie dead. Even if it's an interesting conversation, does it really help us? Does it, is, is it a catalyst into the rest of the story? Do we need it? And I, I was the one who, I was the only one in the room who said, let's cut it. And everybody looked at me like I was, I lost my mind. They said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. That scene is the heart of the whole thing because it's about Lois and it, you, 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 ha we have to leave that in there. If we lose that, we lose the whole thread of, of the whole heart of the movie. And I said, all right. And so we cut some other stuff here and there and we figured out ways to, to make up time elsewhere. And I'm so glad that I was shouted down on that one. I mean, I love that scene, but it's one of those things you have to do. Sometimes you have to sort of, I mean, gosh, the number of, the, the the dialogue and the scenes and the things that are, have ended up on the cutting room floor that I cut, you know, before something made it into its final draft. Oh, there's some good stuff. I should go digging through there. I could make a whole new movie out of some of those scenes. There you go. Well, no, I can appreciate. Look, you have limited real estate to work with. And one of the things that I kept coming back to is uh, as grateful as I am that we got this two film adaptation the death of Superman in the comics, right, is only about half a dozen issues or so. Rain <laughs> runs much longer, but you have <laughs> the same number of how movies for titles, each of them. <laughs> How many titles did it span? I don't remember. Well, it was all four of the Superman titles. It was it was four. Yeah. And were there other tie-ins, too? I don't remember. You know, there was the issue of Green Lantern, of course, where... Yeah, where, well, which, of course. So <laughs> that was actually one of my questions. So was it mm. ever on the table to wipe out Coast City as in the comics, whether whether or not you were going to delve into the Emerald Twilight of it all or not. It was on the table for me, <laughs> um, but it was another one of those things where 
that scene works in the comics. That whole idea works in the comics for a couple of reasons. One, because you feel the heartache of it because it happens in a Green Lantern issue, right? And it's it's had this setup and and a whole a whole uh you know many many years of of learning to love that city and then it's destroyed and so you have your heart feels something when that happens the other thing is it was the prelude to the next big story that was about to happen which we weren't going to be able to do in our movies so it was one of those things that it it was like as 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 consequential as it is to the comic book story is how ultimately inconsequential it was to the story we were telling and it just didn't fit and i i i think i had it in the first outline um i tried to make that be a thing but we went that we had you have to try it and we looked at it and we said but who cares in this movie if you cut out all of everything that you're that you know about the comics in this movie who cares it there's no impact it doesn't it's sad but it doesn't fit if anything we should destroy metropolis in this in this movie uh, which we weren't going to really do so um, although we threatened to do it all the time <laughs> <laughs> no i no honestly i hear you it's its own thing and having recently gone back and reread all of hal's wild journey from green lantern yeah. <laughs> to parallax to specter and back again the yeah. destruction of coast city is in one of the superman issues which makes it was even, it really yeah it, it's, it's what makes it even crazier to me Hal is off world when it happens and then you get the green lantern issue where he comes back and he's like what happened again as i always put myself in the shoes of what a green lantern fan must have felt like at that time but in, in any event i totally get where you're coming from and I, and I figured as much we referenced the television series Smallville a lot around here, and there's one Smallville rewatch podcast that's always at the top of my queue. Always hold on to Smallville, hosted by our pal, Zach Moore. Zach and his guests bring tremendous insight, passion, and humor as they discuss each and every episode of the series that ushered in the renaissance of superhero TV. Listen to Always Hold On to Smallville wherever you get podcasts, and keep an eye out for the other shows under the Always Hold On to banner, including Arrow, DC's Legends of Tomorrow, Superman and Lois, and Star Wars. This episode made possible in part by educator, hobby comic book collector, and pop culture enthusiast Sam Lim. Sam is based in the South Jersey area and is looking to connect with other comics fans as well as retailers. They are also looking for comic shops to explore, so recommendations are welcome. Be sure to follow Sam on Instagram at SZLComics to see their latest comic pickups and shop adventures. I'm a proud backer of the Paragons of Earth crowdfunder. The creative team of Percival Constantine, Thomas DJ, and Eric Johns have plucked forgotten Golden Age superheroes from the public domain, reinvented them as their own sort of Justice League, and put them up against a Lovecraftian apocalypse. Support this project by going to crowdfunder.com, that's crowdfunder without an E, slash Paragons comic, and read a free sample. Also, Perry, who's been a guest on the show, hosts the Superhero Cinephiles podcast about superheroes in media. Be sure to listen wherever you get podcasts. Can I tell you one of the things I'm most proud of in Please. that script and in this Reign of the Superman movie? I, oh, let me preface by saying, I can't believe it's taken how long, how, how long, how long half have we been hour, Half hour. We've been talking a half hour and I have not said the words Mike Carlin yet, which I should have said a long time ago. And my apologies to the great Carlini 
Um, I, the, maybe the coolest thing about this whole project for me, and, and by the way, lots of cool things about this project for little me starting out in this business, getting to work on, was that I got to work on it with Mike Carlin, who was the group editor over Superman Comics. When this story was told in the comics, this was his story. And, you know, he had a real intimate relationship with this story. And I, because of that, I was terrified that it was going to be a lot of him saying, no, no, you have to, where's Coast City? And, where you know, where's, this has to be Mongol. And then we were going to have really, it was really going to be really tough for us to figure out how to make all that work. But Mike was just so helpful and supportive from the beginning had so many great ideas so many great notes he you know it you can the everything he said what came from a place of knowing this thing in and out intimately yet you never got the impression from his notes that he was trying to hold on to something it was he was the first one to say yeah change it let's do something different you know because he ultimately i think he's just excited about stories and new stories and and he loved i think the idea of of uh you know of coming at this from a new angle and uh and so that was incredible um and uh and so but but one of the things that i as a reader never really loved about the story that i wanted to i don't want to say fix but i wanted to do differently in the movie was the way that the Justice League was just sort of like on a ship somewhere on an off on a deep space mission and never explained and just sent away. Because I, as a writer, understand the necessity for that. I get it. Like you can't, it's the same thing they used to do on, on Doctor Who. Eventually they had to stop using K9 because K9 became this magic, this is the sonic screwdriver in the new show. They it, it became this magic thing that could get you out of every situation. So if the Justice League is there, you're asking, where are they? Like you ask that, I think, all the time when you read comics or watch movies, you're like, Yeah, but where's the Justice League? If all if this is really such a big deal, where's the Justice League? So you want to get them off away and out of the story. But I felt like it was a little convenient the way it happened in the comics so i wanted to give them a little bit more plus the idea was this was going to be a justice league movie it was like justice league reign of the superman was i think the original title and so so you know we we were able to take them off the board in a way that made sense for our story and kept them you know part of the action but you know, part of the the uh, the solution ultimately. Um, but uh, but we didn't just sort of like send them on a ship somewhere and then you know have all this happen while they were gone. They were an integral part of what was happening. Absolutely. It wait, since you mentioned the Justice League aspect of all this, I feel like this is something that cuts both ways because watching the death of Superman adaptation, one of the things that was so cool was that going back to those comics in the early 90s it was a very different lineup of the justice league not the a-list yeah. justice league right that we would that we would uh, circle back to so that's always one of those things i love that comic book story to death but watching doomsday tear through that version of the justice league it's effective but 
in my opinion, not as effective as what we get in the animated film where you see Doomsday going up against Wonder Woman and Green Lantern and Martian Manhunter and Flash. So cool. But then that creates that issue, right? Especially in the second half where it's like, okay, what do we do with them? And I, I enjoyed the solution that you came up with. And kind of along similar lines and circling back to the Coast City of it all. So we didn't have that, but we did have this new angle about the cyborg Superman creating this cyber core, right? Taking mm -hmm. civilians and using the mother box technology to turn them into these, to these cyborgs. And it, it was smaller and more personal, but I thought it, it worked. And it was a, again, again, I think an elegant solution to not going the coast city route. Yeah. Or the, uh, the engine engine city or, you yes. know, the, the, but it was that, it was that same idea, but on a more personal level, you know, in a way that could affect you and me, um, you know, much more intimately. And I think that that was, I don't remember, I, don't, I honestly don't remember where that came in in the process. There, gosh, there was, I wish we recorded all those meetings that we had where we were kicking around these ideas. Um, but that was, that was a solution to a big problem, which we really didn't understand the threat. What was the threat going to be? And why should we as the audience feel terrified of, of the threat? And, and if, and if the story was about, you know, accepting, you know, a fraud as Superman, it had to be kind of about, you know, what, 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 what is their, what's their purpose? Why are they, it can't just be that they're a puppet of Mongol or, or, or someone else. It, it, you know, they had to have a plan. They had, there had to be a reason why this was all, you know, the why there had to be a reason why Superman had to come back, you know, in the end. And, uh, not that the comic doesn't have that. It's just, I think there's a, in the context of the movie, it, it needed to feel more personal and, you know, that everybody was in danger. And, and since he was a cyborg, uh, the, 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 the idea of turning them into sort of cyborg, you know, this, what did we call them? The, I'm trying to remember what we called them in the script. It, it wasn't like cyborg army, but it was something like that, but that's not what it was. It was a better version of that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, but it, but it works because again, like I said, this idea of retaining the core of the story, this idea that out of all of them, cyborg Superman seems like he might be, he might be the true Superman, right? But then there's something more nefarious going on and no, it's not the, the scope and the scale of an entire city, 7 million people being wiped out. But this idea that you have people who are being corrupted and turned into these, into these beings, I think it works. And you give us that couple in particular, one of the things that I really appreciated, and it had been a little while since I had watched this, so I didn't remember uh, off the top of my head, and I was I was relieved when I watched this, is that when Cyborg Superman is defeated uh, and the Cyborg Corps, you know, sort of all fall to the ground, for a second I was like, oh, are they going to wake up and be okay? But no, you know, you didn't pull, the movie didn't pull its punches there, right? Those people were lost, and I think that was... I think that was the right choice and I think it put some more teeth on it. And so I appreciated that because I think it would have been easy to sort of, again, kind of pull that punch, but I'm glad that the movie didn't. Uh, well, thank you for that. I just found my Reign of the Superman folder on my computer with all the old documents. The earliest document I have in here is from August 16th. Oh, no, that's not me. That's okay. So I have the script for Death of Superman, which they sent me. I got that from August 16th, 2016. 
Then the next document I have is is a is an outline. It's <laughs> it's a sort of beat outline uh, that addressed some notes, apparently. And I'm trying to see if this one had in it. Yeah, I don't think this one had the cyborg army in it. Uh, it's fun to look back at these. I really wish I'd looked at these before I came on the podcast so I could be more literate about what I can say and what I shouldn't say. But um, but some of this stuff is some of this stuff is really fun. There's scenes in here that I'm like, oh, I forgot about we were gonna do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. No, it's quite all oh. right. Yeah, we were bringing Superman. Oh, anyway, <laughs> I can't say. One of the other questions I had along the lines of Coast City, a big part, not so much of rain, but a funeral for a friend, is that mm -hmm. Jonathan Kent has suffered this heart attack and has this encounter with Clark in the afterlife. Was that yeah. ever anything that was discussed or considered? Uh, no, uh, it I was it was I, every. Honestly, everything was discussed and considered. Everything. Like when you say that, I remember the conversations about that now. But it it was, you know, it was another, it was it's the same answer to all of it. It's it would be great, but um, but we didn't have the real estate for it. I think in my I think it was in my earliest outline, though. Um I think it, I think there was, I think it was in there. Uh, I, I remember writing something uh, with, with his dad in, in the, in the uh, sort of void. <laughs> um, but I think in the end, the, the decision was it stops the movie and um, can we afford it? And uh, it's, it also it's it stops the movie for a, a scene of a couple of people talking, which in an animated movie isn't always what you want. So, if you're going to stop the movie, hopefully you don't stop the movie. But if you if you're going to, it should be you know to blow some stuff up. I would think probably. I think that's a thing that depending on when the action is happening, you know where you where you put the action in the script, sure that can become a that can become a thing. I think though the reason why. We didn't know where, where does that happen in the comics, in the storyline? It's in funeral. And it, it sort of, it sort of culminates in adventures 500 right before rain kicks off. Yeah. Like right before that's, that's sort of the, sort of the bridge. Yeah. And it, it so there was originally, I think that is how I was going to open it originally. And we didn't have space or time. And that's when I decided to, um, to move to to move uh have the opening scene be Lois dealing with the 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 you know the aftermath of course um, yeah 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 no it totally you know it's funny because I know I'm asking about oh why what about this what about that but what is there works great I want I want to be clear oh, no, like, I, I really I you know I, I I agree and I appreciate it and I thank you for 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 you know qualifying it it's just that I what I feel bad is I'm trying to remember what the particulars were why we I remember writing the beats out for that scene and, and, uh, and I, I think, I think I, 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 I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was Jim 
who said, you know, we really need to open the movie with Lois because this is her movie. This is her story. And so we got, we got to start with that because we're never going to come back to the other thing. And, uh, you know, that's... Jim was really... So this is, I was learning a lot at that time. And one, one of the things Jim had taught me and still says to this day is, you know, when we're doing an adaptation like this, is that we're not we're not trying to make the thing that you read in the comics. We're trying to make you feel the way you felt when you first read it in the comics. And that is this very freeing kind of philosophy. It's a good philosophy. It's the right one. But it also has, it's magical for writers and producers and, and everyone and artists and everybody because it sort of opens a door and frees us up to say, okay, you know, so we're going to lose some things that are memorable from the comics, but our goal is to make you feel what you felt, not to make you see what you saw. And, um, and that, that, that was the guiding, guiding light on that. And that is still the guiding light on anytime I work in adaptation. And I know it is for Jim still too, you know, he's a wise man. Sure. Well, you're adapting. You're not merely translating. There's, there's the art to that. And uh, well, one of the things that that is in the film that I wanted to ask you about is at the climax of the battle between uh, Superman and Cyborg Superman, Cyborg has a line about, I know you won't kill me. And Superman says, I'm not programmed that way, but I have a wild card, right? And he has that crystal from the fortress with the eradicator program. And he just jams it right into Cyborg's head. <laughs> just curious. Just curious what your 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 intention or just your view on that scene and that action, that decision it would be. Oh, I mean, you know, I I think you know it's one of those um it's one of those things that I'm very happy, you know, I'm very happy to take credit for it. I hope if people want to blame me or people didn't like it, you know, I don't care because I, I think that, that that's that moment is is pure cinema. It's pure Superman. It's it's the Superman that we that comes back. It's the resurrected. That's resurrected Superman in a nutshell. That's a Superman who's been who's died, and who came up against Doomsday, and he he's willing to to go a little bit further than maybe he would have gone before. And it's not a bad thing. He's a little bit unshackled. He's a little bit untethered, and uh, and it's an indicator that things are going to be a little bit different. There's a new sheriff in town. Um, you know, I, that's, that's, that's the kind of stuff. I love that stuff. It's, it's, it's very comic booky too. I mean, it's, it's super, that's where cinema and comics really meet is in a scene like that in a moment like that. Um, you can pull that off in comics and I, you know, I think we, we pulled it off in the, in the movie as well. It's so badass when he opens his eyes and they're red and we, and we get that moment that we just talked about uh, and it's funny because we've talked a lot on on this podcast about, uh, you know, whether Superman could or should kill and under what circumstances. And we've had those debates. Oh, and really? You've had those conversations? <laughs> I wonder what prompted that. I wonder what could you possibly have watched that would have made you question that? Well, I guess, do you see this as, as I mean, do you see this as Superman killing Cyborg? I mean, because we know from the comics, right? The consciousness no, always survives. Not, but okay. Yeah, he always right. survives. Yeah, okay. I don't see it that way. I see it as freeing Hank Henshaw. Um, you know, uh, that's, you know, it's, I think it's a mercy <laughs> um, in that respect. 
uh yeah i don't i don't i don't think it's it's quite as uh cut and dry as as the other movie that you might have been referencing when you were talking about that 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 important thing um that's a t that's a real tough one i was shocked when i watched that in the movie theater i was like whoa really that's an interesting choice that's a really interesting choice and but my argument pulls me back from the cliff on those things which is once again it's a great big beautiful multiverse and who's to say in that part of the multiverse superman wouldn't do something like that it doesn't mean that we've rewritten his dna and super, all supermans in all you know uh on all earths would would handle things that way but this one would we also had a different like you know based you know look we also had a different superman in this moment than than you might have seen in in the other film that we're not saying out loud, but the, you know, this was a Superman who had just lost everything and gotten all back and been to hell and back basically. And, and, you know, his, he, I don't think he lost sight of anything. I think he, I think if anything, he just had more clarity in our story. He knew what had to be done and he did it. And, Ultimately, it was a good thing for Hank Henshaw, and it was a good thing even for Cyborg Superman. And, uh, you know, and I don't think, I don't think Superman would kill for the thrill of it. No, no. I don't think he would kill because it felt good. I don't think he enjoys it if he has to do it. But I think Superman in my mind, Superman would do everything he could to not take a life. But if he had to, to save everyone else, he would. Yes. That has been my position, and we've talked about it a lot, and the audience knows my feelings on this, but the, the instance that we were dancing around, no, I've, I've defended that, and I, I don't, I don't, I know people have a lot of issues, but I, I haven't, but it was, well, it was just curious. I think pe yeah. people's issues might have to do with sort of the that movie itself. Like, they're sort of wondering, is it, that moment does have to be earned, which is what I'm talking about in terms of like, we were, we benefited from the fact that we had a Superman who had died and been resurrected and was slightly different. Now he's wearing a black suit, you know, like that there's a reason he's wearing black like that. And, you know, he's, he's, he's uh, Luke Skywalker in Jedi at that point where he's touched the dark side and now things are a little bit different. Things are going to be a little bit different. You know, for when we meet Skywalker in Jedi, you know, he like, the first thing that happens is that he just, he kicks everybody's ass and Jabba the Hutt dies and other people die. And, you know, it's all at his organization, if not his hand. And, uh, and that's because, and that's indicated for us by the filmmaker, by the fact that he's dressed like Darth Vader, you know, when we meet him in the beginning of that movie. And I think that we benefited from that. So the question is, in the other stories, you know, is it earned? Does it feel right that Superman, and that's arguable. You can, you know, mileage will vary for different audience members on whether they felt like that got earned by the rest of the movie. Um, you know, it's certainly, it was meant to provoke that kind of, I think it was meant to provoke that kind of discussion and that kind of debate. And I don't think there's anything wrong with everybody having a debate about whether Superman should or would kill. Um, I think that's a valid and interesting question, you know, and we're all going to have different answers and opinions on it. Absolutely. But honestly, big picture with this rain adaptation to see 
to see the four replacement Superman, to see Superboy and Steel and Cyborg and Eradicator, to see them on screen and they felt true to the characters in terms of design, in terms of characterization, to see Clark reborn with the long hair in the black suit, to have that showdown, to reframe this really as Lois's story. Uh, again, from my perspective as someone who has grown up with these stories and continues to go back to them and has talked about them a lot, <laughs> I, I just, I enjoyed this so much. And uh, I, I want to make sure we we reserve time for Man of Tomorrow. One of the last questions I had about Rain is just uh, what what level of of collaboration, if any, did you have with Peter Tomasi, who wrote the death portion of this? I, I didn't have any. Um, you know, Pete Tomasi is a genius, by the way, um, and uh, we have we've met, we have friends in common. I didn't know any of those people back then. I was just starting out, um, but uh, but no, we didn't have any contact or collaboration on this but the producers were the same people who did death of superman with pete so um so that was you know if if, if anything i mean the closest i had to any sort of collaboration with pete was that they sent me his script when i was getting started on the outline for rain and and so i got to see that while it was still in production i got to read that while it was in production and and know sort of the world, the way he had set it up and the way that um, he left it for the next movie. And, you know, that he, he the good news is I didn't have to pick up the phone and call Pete Tomasi and say, oh, now what does this mean? Like, why are we doing this? Because he's, he, everything was, was, was right. I mean, he worked with closely, I think with Alan Burnett on that script and, and, uh, and it was, it's, it's, you know, I don't want to, I feel bad saying it's perfect, but it's, you know, because that's such a standard to hit, but I think it was near perfect for me. Um, it gave me everything I needed. And I, you know, I rarely feel as equipped as I did after reading that script, going in and starting a project. And, you know, that, that was, that was, uh, if, if I had needed to get in a room with Pete Tomasi, I bet he would have been happy to, but I think his script did all the talking for him. Well, the movie's, play off of each other beautifully and, and flow seamlessly. And of course I know, you know, Warner Brothers put out the combined version of these two. Yes. Yes. It's on my shelf right behind me. Very nice. <laughs> Very nice. I, you know, one of the things that's, that I do appreciate about the animated adaptation of this is in the comics, Lois had known the secret for a while. They'd been engaged for a while. Certainly tragic that Clark meets his end, but I feel like what really elevated the proceedings here was that you had this couple on the verge of taking that next step. And that just amped up all of, all of the emotion. Uh, so I really enjoyed the way that that played out. <laughs> That's the beauty of, you know, concentrating a story into 75 or 80 minutes is that you don't have time, you know, to mess around. Like, it's like, we're, let's get the stakes dialed up as fast as we can and as big as we can. And, and uh, you know, that was, that was great. I loved that. Yeah. I was, I couldn't believe it. I, I, I was so excited. I, Okay, I'm going to say something newsworthy and controversial. I like the Death of Superman movie, animated movie, more than the comic. Okay. Is that controversial? I There's something for me about the, the confluence, the, the, the combination of all the people's talents who were involved in that movie that, you know, and I hate to, comp I, I, I shouldn't, I should, I should not compare them. Because it shouldn't be about that. Um, it should make you want to go back and read the comics, and it did. I went back and read the comics after, but um, but 
I think that movie, the death of Superman movie that I had nothing to do with, um, it just, for me, just hit so many, so many of the heartstrings that I felt should be hit. It was like it was designed for cinema more than comics, that story. Uh, but yeah, mileage will vary. Yes. No, that's the thing. I, I and I feel when so the last time that I reread the Death of Superman comic, I did so after reading actually for the first time everything that led up to it. Mm-hmm. And it plays differently when you've had the few years of of comic book stories leading into it. But I would imagine for someone to read the Death of Superman trade in a vacuum versus watching the movie. No, I mean I I totally get what you're saying. And it it it, it works so well on so many levels. And oh, I need to mention before about the vocal performances, and and uh, I agree, Rebecca Romaine was was tremendous. I gotta give a shout out though, Patrick Fabian as Hank Henshaw. That oh, guy, I'm so glad you did. So glad you did. Yeah, I mean he's, he's done incredible. a million. He's done a million things, but I'll always remember him as <laughs> Professor uh, Lasky from uh, from Saved by the Bell, the college years, and then Professor <laughs> and then Professor Landry from uh, from season three of Veronica Mars. But yeah, can you do oh. anything that you want to share about him? Because he oh. so, brought so much humanity to the character. I I have only gushing, glowing things to say about Pat Fabian. His work as Hank. Uh, in in this in this movie, is I I could I could be wrong about this, but I think it was the first animation voiceover work he had done, and because of that, he went into it like there was no resting on any laurels. He went into it and just made a lot of room. And there's that one, there's that one big scene in the third act where he just loses it, and he's. He's so good. It's so real. And I had the pleasure of getting to go out and promote this movie when it was released with him. And he could not have been a a nicer, more charming man. We did New York Comic Con together. Uh, He, he, um, you know, his talent is, 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 I think he is, he was terrific on Better Call Saul. Like, terrific. But he is also someone who is still, I think, has not been realized for the amount, the depth of of talent that he has. He's going to, there's a project waiting that's going to come for that guy. And he's going to just blow the doors off the place for everyone. In the way that you see him start to in the third act of Reign of the Superman. Can't say enough about him. Amazing guy and incredible, incredible to work with. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina, for people of all ages and walks of life. With more than 40 years and a new second location to its name, Acme is a multiple-time Eisner Award nominee. The shop features a significant contemporary and vintage selection, as the Acme team uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material. Mail order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available anywhere via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the Acme cast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Filmmakers and movie fans alike should be sure to attend these film festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and Round Reel in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Take it from an alum of two of them. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news about events, discounts, tickets, and more. 
Also, listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. This podcast is an affiliate of BCW Supplies. The next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP to save 10% on your order. That's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions. It helps support the show, too. Many of you have already used this code, and I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, he was, uh, he was so tremendous. glad you mentioned Pat Fabian. He, you know, I mean, there's a that whole cast is amazing, but he's got just a, a very special place in, in my heart. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, again, across the board, I mean, Cameron Monaghan, I was a big fan of his, uh, though I didn't watch Shameless, but uh, I was a big fan of his turn as uh, Jerome and Jeremiah on Gotham. And so, and Cress Williams, I mean, like the, the, the the cast is tremendous, but. Cress Williams, we had, you know, Tony Todd. Yeah. Who I've since gotten to work with on Masters of the Universe. Uh, You know, he, he, you know, what, just a legend. Uh, And I can't believe I got to meet these guys and go promote the movie and, and and be there for I, I i didn't go to i wasn't able to go to any of the record sessions for the movie so i didn't get to meet anybody until we were out on the road and uh and they were just amazing just 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 really cool people you know so maybe that's actually a, a good bridge into man of tomorrow because there you weren't inheriting any voice actors but rather we were starting a new universe with what's become known now as the tomorrow verse and if I'm not mistaken, right, you were the one originally this was going to be called, was it Superman Metropolis? And It you... was called Superman Metropolis. And uh, and when I turned in my draft, uh, I changed, I didn't tell anybody, and I changed the title to Superman Man of Tomorrow. I just felt like sometimes the title reveals itself when you're working on it. Sometimes you know what it's going to be, and it sets up the whole project in the beginning. But this, in this case, I didn't, uh, I didn't, Superman Metropolis just, just didn't say anything to me. Um and but once I was done, I was like, well, this is a story about, you know, w- what kind of man are you going to be? You know, in many ways, you know, Lobo in this movie represents the man of yesterday, this br- brash, you know, misogynist kind of representation of the patriarchy in so many ways. And and Superman represents the kind of man we all aspire to be tomorrow. Um, and, uh, and so that, and it, because of of course, man of tomorrow is inherently, you know, connected to, to Superman. It made a lot of sense and I'm glad they let us use it. Uh, I didn't, I didn't even think about it when I wrote it on the script. I didn't even think that that might be a thing that they wanted to do with live action as like a sequel to man of steel, which a lot of people talk about how they wanted man of steel sequel to be called man of tomorrow. Never even crossed my mind. And then but what's interesting is nobody, I put that title on the script and then it never came up. Nobody ever, no, we never talked about it. We never, like, it was just like, that became the title of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> we never had to talk about it. I I hope that that reason for that is because everyone felt the way I did, which is, oh, yeah, because that's what this movie, that's what it is. That's, it's not about Metropolis, you know, it's about the man of tomorrow. Yeah, no, it's it's a much more evocative title. I'm glad that everyone got on board with that. Were you there for any of the recordings for Man of Tomorrow, or or not for that one either? Oh, I'm so embarrassed to say that I didn't get to go to any of the Man of Tomorrow records. Now, I just want to be let, let me be very clear about this. It's not that I didn't want to go to the Reign of the Supermen or the Man of Tomorrow records. It's that nobody told me when they were and I wasn't invited, <laughs> which is very, this is a thing that happens. A lot of times the writer doesn't get invited. And, but sometimes you do. 
I got to go to almost all of the long Halloween records, which was incredible. Um, but when Man of Tomorrow happened, uh, I was um, already out of the door at Warner Brothers. I turned in my draft of Man of Tomorrow, did a little bit of work uh, on a couple of other projects for a couple of weeks, and then started on Transformers for Netflix, like right after that. So I and I was at Netflix for the rest of the year doing the other stuff. Um, so I didn't get to go. So I didn't get to hang out with Darren Chris as Superman, Alexandra Daddario uh, as Lois, magnificently playing Lois, and uh, and of course Zach Kinto as Lex, who uh, really I thought uh, really owned it. I thought he was terrific. So it was great good. casting. I I was so happy. I wasn't involved in any of the casting. It. And I was so happy when when I heard Zach. I was like, "Oh, he's great for this for this particular Lex. He's perfect." And Ryan Hurst as Lobo. I mean, this sons, oh. this Sons of Anarchy fan was very Me happy. Too. Very happy. Me <laughs> too. Yeah, I was just trying to explain the joys of Sons of Anarchy to my husband who's never seen it. Oh. And I'm like, no, no, it's Hamlet on hogs. You got to watch it. It's great. It's so good. <laughs> my wife and I binged it before we got married. We binged that over. A like an embarrassingly short amount of time yeah <laughs> but yeah. it was so good i mean we, we were so hit, hooked but yeah I, I mean a tremendous cast actually let me let me ask this question because obviously you're writing it you you hear it in your head and then you're not there for the records but then you see the the finished product was there any specific performance or scene or moment or line that you were like wow like that's not at all what i envisioned but man like I, i'm i'm so happy with how this came out uh, most most of the time, I will say 99.9% .9 of the time, I'm watching something. So I'll, I'll finish my work on a project and I go off and work on other things while the movie's getting made. And then the first time I actually see it is when it's done and everybody in the world is seeing it. And so 99.9% .9 of the time, all, I, all that happens when I'm watching the movie is I'm hearing all and I'm seeing all the stuff that I think I screwed up or that somebody misinterpreted or didn't get right in terms of what I was going for, which means I screwed up ultimately, because I think if I don't communicate it, unless they made a change, which is also a possibility. Sometimes I'll see a change that they made and I'll, it'd be like nails on a chalkboard for me because I'm like, no, I can't, it's gotta be this. And I get very rigid about those things. Um, I'm such an artist, uh, but it's, so it's good that they keep me out of the process as long as they can. Um, but uh, but so no, specifically, um, I think if if looking at Man of Tomorrow, generally I was blown away by how perfect all the casting was. Um, Darren Chris knocked it out of the park for me uh, as as Cal L. Um, I think the one that surprised me the most because I didn't really know a lot about her work was Alexandra. I, I, I wasn't anticipating Lois. And I think this is part of the design too, and the artists as well. Like I didn't picture Lois to be quite as cool as she ended up coming on cross. So it wasn't in my head that she was particularly cool in, uh, in, in the script. And then you watch the movie and you're like, of course she's cool. Like of she's the coolest and she should be because that's how she gets to be who she is at this young age. Um, and, uh, so, and I think she, she played that perfectly. So in terms of the lines, like she underplayed the, the first scenes 
that she had in a way that invited you in and made you really love her because it was so real. Um, the stuff at the copy machine yeah. with when she's when she's she's fixing the jam in the copy machine, it's it's uh, it's subtle in a way that invites you in and makes you want to know more about her and 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 you know which is what I was going for with the dialogue and so sometimes everything fits and that's not just obviously due to the actors but also due to the voice direction um and uh you know Wes Gleason is a you know legendary voice director and, and casting um uh, uh director and he um you know he's he's he was we've developed a pretty good rhythm over the years, Wes understood my voice and what I was going for. So this is why they didn't always bring me into the record because I think Wes could answer all the questions. He kind of would would be able to tell you what I was doing, what I was going for. He understood my sense of humor. He got where the jokes were, you know, and uh, so he was able to pull those performances out from from the actors in, in, a, in a really satisfying way. Yeah, it was, no, it was really tremendous. I think there's a lot that I appreciate about this movie and, and over the course of doing this podcast, I mean, I've looked at virtually all of the tellings of Superman's origin across time and media. And it's always fascinating to see what, what angle, what focus each project will take. And one of the things that was so intriguing about this one was positioning Kal-El among Lobo and Martian Manhunter, the other sole survivors of their races. Cause I feel like it really contextualizes Superman within the larger DCU. That was one of those things that kind of just, it just sort of came up in the process. It was something I wasn't expecting, but we knew we wanted to have Lobo in there. He was in American Alien, and I think that was that was you know part of it because it's a similar scene that that we're that we're going for with him the, the first time when we meet him in the, in the movie. Um, but I know Butch really wanted to get Logo uh, Lobo in there, um, and. You know, he had done some really cool stuff with Lobo, I think, on Superman, the animated series. And we did some fun stuff on Justice League action. And I think he's just a favorite of Butch's and mine. Um, but, you know, I, Butch is the boss. So if if he had said, no, no Lobo, then I would have taken Lobo out, you know. Um, happily, he wanted to, to put him in there. And so once he was in there, um, it, it suddenly became this, to me, this idea about the man of yesterday, the man of tomorrow, and also the idea that they're both the last survivors of, of their, of their race and for very different reasons. <laughs> and, um, and, and when I, I think it was in the process, I just realized that we needed another, there needed to be another voice in the conversation and another character. And then once, once we knew that we needed that M Martian Manhunter made the most sense not only because of his powers and abilities, which were helpful, uh, but, you know, in terms of sort of letting him hide in plain sight the way that Kal-El is hiding in plain sight, the way that that um, that Lobo isn't <laughs> hiding, um, it, you know, he he made the most sense. And then it, it, it just so happened that he also represented the last of his people and therefore would have something to impart to Kal-El that he needed because he didn't have Jor-El there, you know? Um, so, uh, so it was kind of accidentally poetic. I think it came out in the process that we, 
sort of realized that we were doing that. And then, and then that scene with the three of them, that's why the last scene is the three of them on the rooftop, you know, the three last survivors of their, of their people, of their planet. And, um, and, and, you know, they're right here on earth, you know, the three of them having started over and repre each representing a different kind of hope for their, for their lost people. Lobo, you know, a, a, a very different kind of hope, but, uh, you know, but at least, uh, some, some future for their people. That's what they, they see they're representing there at the end. Yeah. I really appreciated that angle in and of itself, but especially for a movie that tees up this tomorrow verse line of movies to kind of give you a, a, a glimpse into the larger picture. One of the other things that really made this sing for me was Clark's proto costume with the aviator, the aviator, the man. yeah, that yeah. whole, that whole, uh, get up, uh, in large part because, and again, the audience knows this, uh, I've talked about it endlessly, but Smallville was so formative for me as a Superman fan. And that whole period of time where Clark is operating as the red, blue blur, and then the blur, uh, and then even in the American oh, Alien miniseries with the similar type mm -hmm. of proto costume and, and then what we mm -hmm. see here, it always makes sense to me because I felt like it's such a huge leap, no pun intended, to go <laughs> from civilian to Superman in the in the red and blue to be this public facing superhero. And so to show kind of the progression always made sense to me. I always that always resonated. Yeah. The I I loved the way we saw him in the aviator leather jacket stuff in American alien, Butch loved it. We love that visual, the idea of him figuring it out, not really knowing what to do. Um, but the, the thing that we really, that was really important to bring in was, and remember long Halloween was supposed to be first. So we would have had long Halloween one and two and then man of tomorrow. And it was that uh, the copy machine, you know, Lois was, making copies or you know of of a of a of photos of of you know, blurry photos of the batman in gotham city and uh and had had written you know cool cape on the on the thing which lovesick clark goes home and starts tying a bed sheet around his neck because he thinks i need a cape I, you know i've got to impress her and she likes capes so that's what, so the the very sort of human you know, young guy who's forlorn, lovesick, you know, nerdy guy, uh, you know, figuring out that this is maybe his way of, of looking cool to the girl he's interested in. Um, it's so human and so relatable, you know, uh, we've all tied a bedsheet around our neck or a towel, you know, when we were kids and, you know, so what, what does this look like? You know, um, then for him to get that inf inspiration, in a, he got it sort of direct inspiration from Lois and indirectly from the Batman. And that, you know, made some sense out of it for me. It's almost like the cape is a, is a thing that Batman put on for his mystique and also practical reasons that he uses it for. But for Clark, he doesn't need a cape. He literally just puts on a cape to impress the girl, you know, and, uh, and it becomes part of his look. And, you know, his his mom obviously helps out with that as well. Because yes. she's been looking at the all the photos of of the Batman in the in the the news rags at the checkout, the supermarket checkout. 
you know. Speaking of Ma, so as as a child of the Triangle era and the post-crisis iteration of Superman, in my heart, Ma and Pa are alive and they're a sounding board for him. And so I loved all of that, even them FaceTiming and and Pa and both of them, you know, (laughs) teaching Matt a tie is tie. All of those little moments were so great. And, And also going back to the to the performers as a Scrubs fan, uh, hearing oh. Neil Flynn as Pa Kent. Yeah. Oh, it was great. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, no, they were great. And and they really pulled off those little, those little small scenes, you know. I I was I was working on the movie. I don't remember where I was in the process, but it wasn't the first, I don't think it was maybe it was right before I delivered the first draft. Um, I didn't have an opening. I wasn't really sure what the first scene of the movie was. And then the the idea of of young clark you know getting scared of the horror movie at his friend's house at at, you know pete ross's house um you know and and his dad having to come and pick him up and having it all look really cute and innocuous and childlike but then that truck ride home in silence like all that's in the script where it's like they're riding it's silent and then he just says to his son, you didn't say anything, did you? Something like that. And and it's to, to you know, <laughs> we all know about this kid. We learned in that moment that the kid knows what he is. He knows he's different. He was scared of the movie because the aliens were, you know, hated and despised, which is what the whole, ultimately this whole movie is about is his fear of coming out as an alien because he's afraid of what the world will think of him and how they'll treat him. And, uh, and so that those little moments, you know, were the, these actors, you know, they just made them play so perfectly. The little scene that you mentioned about teaching him, you know, telling him how to tie his tie, but the cameras reversed and they're like trying to figure out the FaceTime. That's all very relatable. I think we all, have had those moments with, with our parents or or the elders, and you know, and with with anybody, especially with elders who you know sometimes technology would elude them. I'm at the age now where it's starting to elude me, and I'm just like I don't know how to do anything anymore. All of a sudden, technology doesn't make sense. Um, but uh, but they it, it really is instrumental in selling all those those small what seem like small moments because they're filled. They seem small, but they're filled with so much heart. And I think in a Superman story, that's how you learn who he is. You learn who he is reflected in through his mom and dad and through Lois and Lex, ultimately. Um, and, uh, you know, that's how we, because we don't have the benefit of being in a comic book where we can hear their inner monologue. So in a movie, that's how we learn about who this guy is. One of the things, one of the hardest things to do, by the way, in any of these things is to approach it as if you're telling the story to an audience who doesn't know anything about Superman or Batman or anybody, Green Lantern. And, um, and that, so that's really tough, but you find sort of little shortcuts and, and ways to, to fill it in. And ultimately in the end, everybody kind of knows who Superman is. So you can trust in that a little bit. No, but it's about, you know, I thought about this particularly with reign of the Superman, reign of the Superman and the cyborg reveal, because it's like, Yes, you know that a lot of comic book fans are going to be watching this and they'll know that Cyborg is the bad one and you'll have that reveal. But comic book fans aren't the only people who are watching that, right? So again, walking that line and striking that balance Mm -hmm. between, 
uh, you know, maintaining the tension, not so long that you're boring the people who know where it's going, right? But preserving enough of it where it's a surprise for the people who are new to it. Uh, again, I'm sure is, is a tough uh, line to walk. You know, one of the touches in Man of Tomorrow that I really liked was when Clark is an adult and he's having that conversation with Jonathan and Martha. And uh, he's talking about how, you know, I can either stand tall in front of the world or keep my head down, but I, the choice is mine. But either way, I have to accept the consequences. And it's like, I like the way that played where it's clear they've had that conversation a lot of times, but it's not so much that we had a flashback to them having that conversation, but it's just this lived in part of their family dynamic. And I, I, I liked how that played. You know, there's, I'm sure you've had this conversation too. Uh, there's that whole com whole question about how um, Kevin Costner's pa, you know, how he uh, approached Clark on on this stuff about how open he should be with the world, and I can see the argument both ways. I really can. I understand traditionally what we expect but i also understand a parent saying to their kid you you can't you've got to protect yourself because they'll come for you and we can't lose you you are i mean these these two who couldn't have a kid were blessed with a miracle from above and raised him you know in, in a bubble out on the, in the middle of nowhere and then send them off into the world, you know, they're terrified. They've got to be terrified of every danger that's out there for him. I can see that as a legitimate way of telling the story. And, and it helped in terms of this story, in terms of, you know, Clark's, Kal-El's feelings about whether he should, what he should tell the world. You needed to understand what his frame of reference was. We learn about the world from our parents. You know, we live in a world that they gave us. And that's what, you know, Kal-El is, he moves to the big city and he suddenly he's surprised by the world, but not completely. You know, it's it's a scary place. So he has legitimate reasons to be concerned and be worried. Um, in the end, I think what he realizes is that those concerns are self-motivated and he makes a choice to not, let his actions be motivated by his own self-interest. And that's what makes him Superman. That's what turns him into the best of us. Absolutely. No, the idea that the Kents would be, would be motivated, uh, at least in part by this fear that there's someone to be taken away and dissected is totally believable. And the, the guidance that flows from that totally tracks. But to your point, one of the things that I, I love about this movie is that there's, plenty of action, but when we get down to it, it's not about the fisticuffs in the end, right? It is about Superman standing in front of the people on that bridge and standing yeah. between them and Parasite and the effect that that has. And further, because I don't want to forget this, this was something that I, I very much enjoyed. Parasite, I could kind of take or leave Parasite generally as a, as a fan, but what was so cool here was actually seeing the humanity and playing him as someone with integrity, right? Who had been this decorated veteran and he's a stand-up guy and he's got his home life. And I, I really appreciated that take. Where, where, where did that come from? Well, some of that is in American Alien, right? I mean, I think we got a very interesting look at Parasite in there. It was real quick though. I don't know that we really got into the details of, of 
you know, who he was. It's different in comics. You know, you can, in a panel and a couple of words, you know, that inspired something in the writing for me that was like, well, he's just a victim, you know, ultimately in the end, he's a, he is, the irony of him is that he's one of us, but we, we have turned him into something. Well, I say we, but really Lobo ultimately kind of was responsible for turning him into something that appears to be alien and is not, he's not. <laughs> and, um, and, but, you know, because of the way it, it ultimately what it is, is a story of, in, in that piece of the story is about passing how we, how someone who is different passes in public. Superman passes as a human being. He just happens to look like everybody else. And so nobody thinks twice about whether he's human or not. Um, but they look at Parasite and they think that's a dangerous, awful monster alien from you know who's coming coming after us and um so they got every the world got it wrong on those you know it's not that superman's dangerous but he's he's an alien and 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 parasite is not um so so in order to sort of tell that story parasite needed to be someone who's you know came from honorable an honorable place that he's just a he's a victim of something unfortunately what happens is he becomes corrupted by the the power that he inherits um and and that's when things sort of twist but i will say act three was a tough one on that movie to figure out and you know butch really wanted the big sort of kaiju battle thing and i'm so bad with action the reason why you're like yeah it's not, there's, there's action but it's not anything i do like the action is so secondary in my mind that it takes a team of smarter people than me to kind of come in and help sort of make the action stuff exciting and make it work. I'm so much more interested in the dialogue that happens between characters and what we learn about them and, you know, through those situations. But it can make for pretty boring animated content if it's just two people sitting in a room coming to terms with something. Um, but, uh, but Jim Krieg is, you know, like me, a huge Star Trek fan. And Jim, I think, early, very early in the process said, well, the way Superman shouldn't win the fight by punching Parasite really hard. Not only because it's, you know, ultimately a little unsatisfying. It doesn't feel really like Superman, but also because Parasite is not necessarily a horrible villain he's been a victim of something and so the beatdown is a little hollow and is problematic at that point he said the way superman needs to win is by giving like that perfect captain kirk speech and the captain kirk speech is a bit of shorthand that we use all the time and it's that thing that you know bill shatner used to do so well on the old series where you know, when all else was lost and there was nothing, no way to win, he would, he would give a speech to the bad guy or, or the good guys he was trying to convince, whoever he needed to convince, he'd give them a, a speech that roused and rallied them and, and made them feel hope and told them what they needed to hear in that moment and united them or, or, or made them change their mind and back off or whatever. 
And he was, ab Jim was absolutely right. That's exactly, I mean, that's what I want. In my, if I go to a Superman movie, I don't want him to win the day by being physically stronger. And I'm going to get a lot of hate from a lot of folks online for saying this, but I just, for me personally, a Superman story that is the, where the problem is solved with fists is not interesting to me. And it's not Superman to me. There's room for it, but it's not the best version of a Superman story as far as I'm concerned. I think Superman is best when he reflects our humanity back at us and makes us change our mind about something and see things differently. And that's why he makes the very difficult decision to explain to the world that it's you're judging this person based on your preconceived notions of what you learned in those 50 sci-fi movies that scared me when I was a kid. But the truth is, I'm the alien. And this is, this person is a human being who's, who's, who's a, a hero. And, 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 and it fell on in, under bad circumstances. That kind of thing and changing everybody's mind in that moment, that's, that's the power of Superman to me. He's, he's not of our world and yet he's the best part of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's everything to do with, you know, how he's raised. He he's just he's he's raised as a you know salt of the earth, uh, you know, kind person by kind people, and and that's what he decides is the best of humanity. That he got the best of humanity growing up, and that's what he's going to give back. Well said. No, I think it it everything ties together beautifully in that moment. Uh, during the climax of the film. So we talked about kind of why you took the track that you did with Parasite, but as far as choosing Parasite at the outset, was it that you saw the potential to do exactly what you're talking about? Was it the American alien inspiration? A little bit of both? Yeah, it was a little bit of both. Like, uh, you know, the, the, the piece, you know, in American alien, we were kind of figuring out who the, who the big bad quote unquote would be in the movie. And, uh, you know, I think Butch really liked the idea of doing Parasite and I identified quickly the, you know, the idea that, that, that we could tell the story about, you know, who, who, who's the real alien here um, and who should we trust and who should we believe. And, um, and the toughest, the toughest part of that is threading the needle because Clark is, or Kal-El, I should say, is saying to the world, no, I'm the alien. But at the same time, he's winning everybody over and changing their minds about aliens because they love him. Um, so, you know, there was a, I think we just figured out very quickly that that was going to be for us an emotionally satisfying part of the story. And, uh, and Parasite was able to, I mean, we could have done it. We could have done it in a lot of different ways. You know, obviously we had, we had Lobo, we had Lex Luthor, you know, there's lots of ways we could have gone with it. Um, I think we used Lex Luthor the right way for this movie though. I think Lex you know, already existing as a bad dude who's up to no good. And then, uh, and then sort of coming around and, and partnering up with him, uh, you know, is, is, is interesting to me. And then of course there's going to be a double cross because it's Lex. Um, that is a, a sad, to me, that's a satisfying way of making Lex Luthor a supporting character in a Superman story and not your big bad, you know, that you're up against. 
arguably he ultimately is the big bad in the end because you know he's the only one with like really horrible intentions that aren't because he's been corrupted by an alien force you know um but uh yeah i, I don't remember specifically but i'm sure we it was it was butch was interested in in parasite as a as a as a foil and as a villain and uh and very quickly we identified the story potential for it which when we first started the i nobody i didn't tell anybody when i wrote this movie i never brought up the idea that it was a coming out story like i never i never said that to anyone it wasn't until after the movie i think i was after i'd already delivered it i think they were already in the middle of working on it and i happened to say that in conversation once with butch or something he was like oh really <laughs> and i was like yeah it's you know i was a closeted gay kid in florida in the 90s and terrified to tell the world who i really was because of how they would treat me and what was in store for me if i did and so for that reason i understood kal-el's you know um reluctance to to be honest about who he was when he didn't have to because the world looked at him and saw him as he's like everybody else so why would he have to say i had the same thing people looked at me and they thought i was just like them so why would i have to and uh so there was the undercurrent of that story. And I think that that's true of like, you know, of a lot of different things. I mean, in this story, Superman's not, you know, a, a closeted gay kid, you know, in the 90s in Florida. Um, it's the fact that he's an alien and he's, you know, um, you know, but 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 people always see the story of, you know, of, of an immigrant in in his, in you know, in the Superman story. They, I think that they, you can sort of, the beauty of that character is I think everybody can kind of see themselves reflected in, in, in Superman and his story is one that we all for our own personal reasons can identify with feeling like an outsider yet feeling like we have this great power and we could share it with everyone if they only would let us, you know, only would let us <laughs> as long as they let us be who we are and share our, you know, strength and hope with them then um then we could all be happy here uh so so i think that that's we all feel that for different reasons and uh so i didn't say anything about it when we were when i was working on it but i mentioned it later on and and uh and it ultimately i think the movie you know they they captured that in the even though it wasn't something we were actively talking about in the in the process they they captured that that's what i found the journey that i went on in writing it that's what I found. I found a story about Superman that was in a lot of ways a story about me and about a lot of other people I know that could, they could look at, they could they could watch that movie and, and see themselves, you know, in, in a movie with a guy flying around in a cape, you know, and a giant kaiju parasite and, you know, a murderous alien from, from, another, from another world. I mean, you know, that's the beauty of comics. <laughs> Hop in the Supermobile and join us for the spinoff podcast Beyond Metropolis, available exclusively for members of my Patreon community. It's a monthly tour across the DC universe with the signature Digging for Kryptonite style applied to your other DC favorites. Additional Patreon rewards include advanced listens, sponsorships, and more. We offer regular monthly memberships, discounted annual plans, free trials, and a la carte purchases. Visit patreon.com slash anthonydesiato or click the link in the show notes for more. Thank you all. Very true. No, not to undercut that beautiful sentiment with a lighter moment, but 
Uh, one of the great gags in the in the film is when Clark's clothes burn up upon reentry, and he is <laughs> nude uh, for yeah. for the the end of the battle, the first battle with Lobo. Uh, yeah. just, uh, has that been kicking around in your head for a while? Was there any sort of pushback? Like, Hey, we don't want it. We can't go this far. Or was we everyone on board? Nobody, no, there was no pushback on it because I think everybody got it. We were like, well, that's, if it's, it would be dishonest to have his clothes intact. It wouldn't, it would be scientifically dishonest. Uh, it would be obviously wrong. I, I can't stand stuff like that that's glaring. And there's some stuff you can cheat and get away with. But no, you, you, it, it's, it is how it would happen. So therefore, at that point in the story, yeah, the clothes burn off. Um, they were just really good about, you know, making sure that you didn't get to see anything. That you, you only saw just enough to know what was going on. But, um, you know, yeah, I, I, I love that that was in there. Um and, uh, but, but for reasons like the people who tell me that they love that scene all the time online, people will tweet at me or whatever, and they'll tell me they love that scene. And it's always because they just wanted to see naked Superman <laughs> for whatever their own reasons are. And for me, it's exciting because it's, it's because it's honest. It, it's, it's not a car. It's, it's telling you this isn't a cartoon. This is a, a movie, this, but it is depicting real life. And this is a, a a thing that would would happen in real life. Now, don't come after me now with a bunch of gotchas about the things in the movie that wouldn't <laughs> happen in real life because I will just not entertain them. Fair <laughs> enough. If we see something similar in the forthcoming Superman Legacy, you saw it, you saw it here first. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. You know, everything James Gunn has said about Legacy in public, every time he talks about it, I'm like, we're on a wavelength, me and this guy. Like, I feel like his idea of how to do a Superman movie is very similar to what my, where my head was at when I was asked to do a Superman movie, McMahon of Tomorrow, starting a new, you know, universe of movies. And uh, he, he's, he said many of the things that I was saying. When we, so I'm basically what I'm saying is James Gunn's ripping me off. No, <laughs> it's honestly though, as I, no, no, I, no, I, I'm, I'm with you, but as no, I, was, I mean, listen, I, that guy's a genius and I love the fact that we, that we're thinking the same way. I mean, that's amazing. As I was rewatching this and knowing what Gunn has said about the forthcoming movie in my head, I'm like, I just, I, I feel like these projects will be kindred spirits in some sense. Well, and well, you know, time will tell, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. I know. I, yeah, I'm, I'm not in the, in the room on that one. I would love to know. I'd love to read, get my hands on that script. I'd love to see what he's doing. Um, I was, you know, the, the reason why Man of Tomorrow got moved up in the production order was because there was a moment when Matt Reeves, they, they thought Matt Reeves, the Batman movie would be very much based on the long Halloween, almost a direct adaptation at one point they thought, and it was early in the process. And so they said, well, you can't release that long Halloween animated movie until after the Batman comes out. So... Uh, because he's going to be doing the same thing and we don't want you guys to market before us. And, um, which is understandable. Uh, but somewhere along the way, his concept changed enough that they took the shackles off and let us put that movie, those movies out. But, um, but you know, there was, there was a moment when I was like, Oh man, do you think maybe, do you think maybe they sent, my screenplays for long Halloween to Matt Reeves. Do you think Matt Reeves 
has read my work. And I was like thinking about James Gunn with, with legacy. And I'm like, do you, is it possible that he saw man of tomorrow or he read my script? Like the, the very notion that those guys have any knowledge of anything I've done is hysterical to me, terrifying and hysterical. <laughs> I, I can imagine, but I would not be the least bit surprised if gun, if gun watched uh, man of tomorrow, I, it would, it would make total sense. Uh, I don't want to keep you here all night. My last couple of questions and then I will let you go. Uh, just going back to Lex in Man of Tomorrow, I love the way he was used as a Smallville fan. I love, I always love the Lex Clark dynamic. I love when they're forced to team up together. Was there ever a thought in this film of having them share a past together in Smallville? You know, I think right from the beginning, we knew we were going to Smallville was going to be reserved for the Kents and we weren't going to tell any Superboy or, or, you know, those formative years, we weren't going to really talk much about that. We had that one scene, the, the couple scenes in the very beginning, um, when he's a child, but when, when Clark's a child. So I don't think we, we were really seriously talking about it, uh, in terms of Lex, but the thing that we did that we did end up working in was this idea that Lex and Lois had a professional history that Lex abused and tried to make personal champagne uh, <laughs> that Lois, you know, is because she will take every advantage given her to get the story clearly, you know, you know, hung out, let's say, with with Lex socially in a way that got him to talk so she could record him. Um, which I just think is such a Lois sort of thing to just whatever whatever opportunity avails itself, you know, that keeps her integrity intact, obviously. Um, you know, she uh, she'll go for it. She's she's dogged in that way. Um, but I loved the idea that he knew exactly who she was in that first scene with them. And and he thought that that meant that he had he had turned her into his ally with his charms. And, and the very idea that that she just she just completely twisted it around and threw it back in his face and ruined him with it is such beautiful comeuppance right at the start in the very first scene with Lex. I, that's the the backstory and the history between characters that I was interested in. Um, it to me it made sense, and it also helped you understand why Lois is as cool as she is and why she's going places. Um, you know, she that's the the line in the in the copy room that ends that scene is is something about like you know well now that you've taken down you know now what are you gonna do now that you've taken down the most popular or the most powerful man in the world and she's like have I you know or something like that you know it's like. You know, it's, 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 uh, you know, the, <laughs> the very idea that now he's got to worry about Lois coming after him is, is interesting for Superman. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. So, so in terms of their shared past and, and history, no, I don't think we really entertained it. Um, but I do love that. I mean, I love Smallville. I love that, that idea. I love the, um, you know, the dynamic that played out. They also did a great sort of, not Superboy thing. Um, I, see, I feel bad because I like, I love the Superboy story, especially with the Legion, you know, but, um, but I think, 
Yeah, I'm I'm grateful that we got to do a story where it was a young Clark in the city, only just now putting together what he's going to do, who 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 you know what kind of man he's going to be tomorrow. I hear you. So before I cut you loose here, patrons do have the opportunity to submit a comment or a question. And I did have a couple of questions for patrons. If if your game, uh, they're not sure. specifically relevant to the Superman talk that we've had. If there's anything you can or don't want to answer, that's totally fine. But uh, sure. Rick asked, are you going to be part of the next phase of Masters of the Universe Revelation? And if so, can you give any teases? Uh, Masters of the Universe Revelation is the Netflix animated series that I worked on with Kevin Smith, um, who's the showrunner. Um, we had an amazing time working on that show. And, uh, yeah, um, I am a writer and consulting producer on Masters of the Universe Revolution, which premieres January 25th on Netflix. So thank you for the opportunity to, uh, shout that out. I, I appreciate it. I wasn't planning on it, but, um... But, you know, we did 10 episodes of Revelation and we did five episodes of Revolution. And I would say it's it's half the number of episodes and twice the story and action and excitement. <laughs> so we doubled everything and put it in half the episodes. So it's it's going to be an intense ride. It's like watching a really cool He-Man movie, I think, when you when those five episodes drop. Very um, cool. I, I can't say enough about working with that team and working with Kevin in, in particular. He's an incredible human being and a very generous person, uh, you know, in every way. And and uh, and I learned so much from him, at not the least of which is just, um, you know, how to find joy going to work every day uh, and not take this stuff as seriously uh, as, as sometimes we want to, um, you know, to remember to have fun when you're doing it. Very cool. Well, I hope everyone will check that out. And then the last question from Josh, this is probably a larger conversation, but whatever you can or, or, or want to say about this, Josh said, I've heard him say that his run on Titans Academy was muddied up by editorial interference. What were some of the original ideas that needed to be changed? Uh, and why did those ideas need changing? Uh, let me be, let me just clear some stuff up there, which is a lot of people have translated stuff that I've said innocently, I'm sure, to say like, uh, oh yeah, editorial interference. You know, it, interference is not the word. This, it, there's no, there was no antagonistic relationship between DC Editorial and me. Um, you know, there were, it was the first comic book I ever worked on. So there were a lot of surprises for me along the way, um, the way that that thing played out. And I will say that compared to the books that I've worked on since then at DC and compared to books that I've worked on, you know, I worked on a couple of, or I worked on some Masters of the Universe stuff for uh, for Dark Horse and Mattel. Um, there was m a more intense relationship a collaboration between a, editor, me and editorial uh, on on Titan Academy. They they put a they, they you know the editor had invested a lot of his own creative juice into that project, and um, so it, it it meant that he was very passionate and I was very passionate and and you know there were some things that they needed for the book from the book that that you know I didn't I didn't I I couldn't say no to because I was brand new, but there was you know like I didn't. I don't think it helped us that we had 
to do a crossover with the Suicide Squad book in issue three of Titans Academy, which was a brand new book. Um, it was kind of, it put a pause on the story that I was trying to tell right at the point when we shouldn't be pausing our story. But that was done because Suicide Squad sales were lower than Titans Academy sales. And they needed to give a little boost to Suicide Squad. And I, I and, and by putting Red X in the Suicide Squad book, that's that was able to do it. It did it. It ended up getting Suicide Squad a bump. I think it ended up sort of losing some of the audience for Titans, though, because they felt like we had started a story and then took them sort of out of the game a little bit, which they weren't real happy about. So there were, it was, it was a lot of trial and error on that book. And I'm so proud of it. Like I, I you know, at the end of the day, when people want to say editorial interference, it's not that there was, it's not even that there was interference. It's that DC Warner Brothers had been sold to AT&T and then sold to Discovery and people were leaving the company left and right. There were five different editors I reported to on the course of those 15 issues. Um, you know, like it, it just kept changing hands all the time to the point where by the end, I was the only one with any institu institutional memory on the book over the course of less than a year. And so, um, so it wasn't interference necessarily. It was just that it was, it was just bad timing all around. <laughs> and so, we didn't get to do the story. Like I, I went in, what I pitched was Degrassi with capes. Um, and we didn't get to do as much of that as I wish we could have done. Um, in the end, now it was a great learning experience. Like I think I've certainly, I come at these books a little bit differently now and I'm a little bit more, um, a little bit more dogged about making sure that we stay true to the vision of the, the pitch and the idea that we all bought into in the very beginning. Um, so it was a good learning experience. I'm really still very proud of it though. I mean, it's incredible what we were able to accomplish in such a time of upheaval at DC. And uh, so it's, and it's a complete story. It's got a beginning, a middle and an end and kind of a nice little epilogue. And uh, I hope everybody, just, you know, there's a lot of people who are just finding out about me in comics from the Alan Scott, the green lantern series that I have out right now. And um, my hope is that they, if they are, if they're enjoying that, that they'll go out and pick up the trades for Teen Titans Academy and and give it a shot because I think a lot of people skipped it because they were like, "Oh, wait for the trades," and then they heard some people say some stuff that wasn't true about the book, which they were also doing on Alan Scott, um, and it kind of turned them off maybe. So hopefully they'll, you know, those books are they're still out there on shelves. Hopefully people will rediscover it. And we, I got to create a whole bunch of new characters in the DC canon and I had the time of my life. So it was, it was really fun. I hope some of them get to come back. Awesome. Well, thank you for addressing that. And on the note of Alan Scott, the green lantern, I'm really enjoying that mini series. I've been a fan of the JSA, uh, since the relaunch in the late nineties and to see a number of these characters, particularly Alan get the spotlight the way they have been is really cool. And the whole Alan Scott coming out storyline in any time period, it would be interesting, but I think particularly setting it in the time period in which Alan Scott, the Green Lantern takes place, is just, it's fascinating. So I've really been enjoying it and I look forward to seeing how the rest of it plays out. And beyond Alan Scott, the Green Lantern, Titans Academy, the animated films we've talked about, Batman, The Long Halloween, Masters of the Universe, uh, anything else that you want to uh, to plug or anywhere else you want to direct people? 
I mean, you know, you can link uh, to me uh, off of my website, uh, timsheridan.com. Uh, you find me on socials and stuff. I just left X though. Finally, I that it just everything that that place is just not what it used to be. So I've decided to focus my time and and other other places. <laughs> but so don't don't find me there. Um, but uh, no, it just uh, Alan Scott, the Green Lantern uh, issues one through three are out. Issue four will be out on January thirtieth. And uh, that's five days after uh, Masters of the Universe Revolution drops on uh, Netflix. So the end of January, uh, you know, lots of fun stuff for you to pick up. Awesome. And by the way, Flashpoint Beyond, we covered it. We did this whole Red Skies event where we went through all of DC's crisis stories. Uh, and we had a lot of fun with Flashpoint Beyond. So I uh, really enjoyed that one as well. Oh, so. What an incredible. I could come back and do an entire podcast just talking about that experience. What an incredible time. I had never met Jeff Johns until we worked on that book together. And... Uh, I don't have anything but incredible, wonderful things to say about him. He's uh, an, a, a great friend and, and one of the smartest people I've ever met, certainly in comics. He knows everything about comics. I learned more from him. Than, I've, I've been very fortunate. The people I've gotten to learn from in this business, I've gotten to learn from people like Alan Burnett, Jim Krieg, Jeff Johns, Kevin Smith. It's It's been uh, it's been a heck of a ride so far. Awesome. Well, Really, thank you for your work on these films and these comics. And thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. It's been great speaking with you. I'm so, I, I, I told my husband, I was like, I'm getting to go on a podcast and talk about Reign of the Superman and Man of Tomorrow. Like, this is exciting. This, this is, I'm here for this. So thank you so much for inviting me and having such a fun conversation. My pleasure. Uh, thank you once again, Tim. Thank you, audience. Always appreciate you tuning in. Make sure you come back next week for another all new episode. And until then, it's about what you do. It's about action. Be sure to check out our sister podcast series, another exciting episode in the adventures of Superman, an episode by episode breakdown of the classic George Reeves television show available wherever you get podcasts. Please join us on social media, become a patron, and subscribe, rate, and review today. Links are in the show notes. Thank you all.